sing holy. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to Thee.
is, I believe a lot more of you could testify with a raised hand that his grace is enough for you, right? What do we mean by that? God is enough for me. His grace is enough. His peace is enough. His love is enough. I don't need to look anywhere else to find fulfillment. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes we do. Sometimes we do that. It will always let us down. The things of this world, other people, they might be fulfilling and satisfying for a a short time, but his grace and his love is the only place we can ever find full, complete fulfillment. He is the only one who is ever enough for us. And sometimes we just need to gather to be reminded of that. Amen, church? Amen. And our testimonies together, together here in this place, when we maybe get quiet for a second and listen, or when we open our eyes from our private, you know, closed eyes, we open our eyes and see the other people, the other believers who are, we're all singing the same song. We're all testifying of his faithfulness. And I hope, I hope that's encouraging to you like it is for me. Yeah. This next song is going to tell, tell, tell yourself what to do. And sometimes we need that too, right? We need to tell ourselves, hey, look up and acknowledge there's no one above him. Get down in a posture that lifts him up, bow before him. Hey, self, look back so that you can see his faithfulness. And then, hey, self, look ahead and, and be reminded that that same God who was faithful in the past is still working, and you can trust in him for your future. Amen. Let's sing. All the worries of this world, I will lay them at your feet. Surrender every anxious thought for perfect peace. Your perfect peace All the loved ones I hold dear All my hopes and dreams and all my fears I will choose to trust your name in
riches jewel and lord to give up i'd be a fool you are my all in put your hope in someone or something else only to find that typically when we do that eventually what happens is we we fall short or we stumble or they leave you disappointed maybe not intentionally but that's just kind of what we do we we have limitations in our humanity we serve someone who has no limits who's above all that we might experience or be going through and who nothing ever occurs to him 
is always aware of what it is you're dealing with and whatever it is that's confronting you. What will confront you in the days ahead? He's the one we're to put our hope in, our God, our Heavenly Father. I'm so thankful for that reminder this morning as we gather together in prayer. Let's pray to the one in whom we should place our hope, never let us down, never disappoint us, who's waiting for us even right now to talk with him. Father, as we come to you in prayer today, you are faithful. You are good. We hallow your name. We lift you up. We assume, Lord, the proper posture is not a time for us to update you on what's been happening in our lives or to, to bring you our list of, of things we'd like you to do. This is a time for us, Lord, to gather into your presence, acknowledge who we are and who we're not. We are with you and who we're not with, who we are without you, Father, and recognize our need for more of you. I believe, Father, I know, I see the those in our faith family who are committed and dedicated to lives of prayer, who have already spent time with you even today, Father, and do it every day. But God, I also know that life can, has a way of getting busy. At times we get overwhelming and we get distracted and perhaps there's a few, Father, that well-intentioned, Lord, but maybe this is the first time in several days they pause to pray. Regardless, because of grace and the depth of your love, you meet each of us. Thank you, God, for that. We sing the words, Lord, and all of our hope is in you. So often the lyrics that we sing are easy, Lord, to sing. They're much harder to practice. Maybe, Lord, this morning there's someone putting their hope somewhere else, in someone else, in something else. They found themselves disappointed, uncertain, perhaps anxious. God, I pray today we would turn our hope towards you. For the one, Lord, who's grieving, may they, Lord, know that their hope is only in you. For the lonely, Lord, remind them we're not alone. For the discouraged, for the uncertain, for the confused, I pray that you bring clarity, reassurance, love, comfort. And God, as we dig into your word today, show us something new change us, draw us to you, chase after us, God, I pray, be glorified as we gather together. We're here to worship you. You're the, you are the focus. You're the audience this morning. So often, Lord, we have trouble visualizing that because we know what we have to offer sometimes isn't much. So, Lord, we bring you ourselves this morning, just as we are, tired, perhaps overwhelmed by what's awaiting for us, perhaps God not even knowing what that might look like. For those who have had a good week, Lord, we bring you our praises. For those who have seen you at work, God, we worship you. We bring a mixed bag of offerings. You receive them all. You turn them into something that we could never do on our own. For that, God, we praise you. Hear us, be with us, speak to us change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, we thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning and look forward to spending some time with you today and just seeing what God has for us. We've been talking about baggage and how we all have it. Uh, we all carry it. And this conversation we find ourselves in began with a revelation that God kind of gave to me one afternoon in my office, and I've been meeting with some friends, I've been going through some uh, just some struggles in their relationship, and as we were working through, uh, talking about the sources of just these disconnects and the need for reconciliation, I came to this realization that I know that I often will view my life uh, through the lens of my own baggage, and I think that's pretty natural, most of us probably do that from time to time, but what we fail to recognize is that when we look at others through the lens of our own baggage, we fail to recognize that the people we see also have their own baggage that they're carrying. We might ask ourselves, why are they acting like that? Or why don't they do things differently? Or why, why what kind of behavior is that? And we, we often are left not understanding, and it's because we don't fully understand what it is they're carrying. Just as they may not understand what it is that we're carrying. The baggage that we deal with is real. It changes us. It weighs us down. It, it impacts us. It could make us stronger, 
God can use it for good things. But more often than not, it keeps us from experiencing all that he has for us. We're invited to come to him, those who are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give us rest. So know that if you are struggling with baggage in your life today, you're not alone. So is everybody else. It all looks differently, but we all have it. And we all carry it. We've been having this conversation of, of following the life of a man named Jacob. In, in the Old Testament, uh, he follows in the line. His father was named Isaac. We'll talk about his story in more detail in just a few moments. Isaac's father was named Abraham. Abraham uh, grew out of, if you will, the, the, from, from the line of Noah after the flood. And Abraham was called by God to follow after him, to take pack up all that he knew and to go to the land that God was promising to Abraham. And out of Abraham would come this great nation. Uh, but he, he came before Noah. Noah came because the world was kind of messing things up. God decided to destroy the world. We're going to go all the way back to destroying the world because of sin. Sin came through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve came from God in the garden of being creation. We've gone backwards all the way back to the beginning of Genesis. Genesis is a very full book. At times when you read Genesis, it can also seem a bit um, primitive, if you will. A little bit rough around the edges. Some of the stories you hear, the things that they did, we have trouble kind of perhaps wrapping our minds around them because they just seem so uh, arcane, just like old. And in, in truth, they are. But there's a lot of beauty and depth in Genesis when you dig a little bit. Beautiful thing about archaeology, when you, when you dig into the earth, you find parts of stories. Same is true in God's story. When you dig a little bit below the surface, you find some beautiful parts that aren't obvious on the surface. And today, we're going to dig a little bit. I think God's going to show us something incredibly beautiful in his word and how helpful it can be for us through the life of Jacob and the baggage that Jacob carries. Jacob has a lot of baggage. We're just now starting to, to, to scratch the surface of his life and all he's encountering and experiencing. He still has a lot to learn. Uh, last week, we, we left off with Jacob deceiving his father to receive uh, the blessing of the firstborn that was intended for Esau. Uh, through the help of his mother, they put on a costume, and his mom prepared a meal, and Jacob went in and pretended to be his brother and received the, the blessing of the firstborn uh, from his father, Isaac. He looked in his father's face. He heard the, the words that he longed to hear from his father, knowing that those words weren't meant for him. They were meant for someone else. Upon leaving that uh, encounter, Esau would then come in right behind, and he would offer his father the meal, and, and Isaac realized what's happened, and Scripture tells us he trembled. He knew he'd been deceived. He was shaking, perhaps out of anger and frustration, or even at least the audacity of being lied to. We find ourselves now with Esau crying before his father, Father, please bless me as well. So Isaac gives Esau what he has left. He says in, in Genesis chapter 27, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness. Remember, <laughs> Jacob's blessing was, may God give you heaven's dew and the earth's richness. Esau gets the leftovers. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword. You will serve your brother. When you, when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. You're going to be dealing with a lot of heavy stuff. Isaac is telling Esau because of what has happened. Now Esau doesn't receive this very well. He kind of gets a little angry, as you might expect, at his younger brother. And Scripture tells us in verse 41, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. Not just because Jacob had taken his blessing, because of the blessing that was left over, that all that Isaac could give him was not good news. So, so Esau has this grudge against Jacob, and he says, The days of mourning for my father are near then I will kill my brother Jacob. Of course, if he kills Jacob, then, well, there's only now one born. And so in his mind, it's a way of reclaiming that which Jacob has stolen. But he has enough love and respect for his father to wait until his father passes. As we talked about last week, Isaac would hang around for another 80 years. It's a long time to hold a grudge. Now, Rebecca catches wind of what Esau's planning. She overhears him, and she runs to Jacob and tells Jacob, your brother Esau is consoling himself. The only peace that he's finding is in the thought that he has of how he's going to kill you. He's conniving and thinking of what it's going to look like. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be painless. It's going to hurt. So now that I don't want to lose both of my sons in one time, I want you to run. I want you to go to my brother Laban's house. And there stay until I send word that everything here is okay. So Jacob starts to get ready to go, and Rebekah goes to Isaac, and she tells Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, 
from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So again, some not so honest motivations. Partially true, but not completely true. And she wants Isaac to send Jacob to her brother Laban to, to find a wife so that she does not marry the women of their country where they're at now, the Hittite women. This was one of the reasons that Esau was looked upon with disdain. Was he foolish? Yes. He been cheated out of his blessing? Yes. But all in all honesty, he was not worthy of promise because of who he had chosen to marry. Now, Jacob as well was not worthy of the promise. So being worthy of the promises is part of our conversation today. But Esau had made decisions that were already excluding him from being who it is that God wanted the child of promise to be. So Isaac calls for Jacob. Can you imagine that encounter for a moment? The scripture just kind of reads right over it. Uh, Rebecca goes to Isaac. I want you to send my son away. I'm just disgusted with these Hittite women. Verse 1 of chapter 28. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. It just kind of reads right through that. But, but we can pause for just a few moments. And we can add the emotion kind of back into the story. And recognize what's happened. Jacob, dressed up at his brother, as his brother, deceived his nearly blind father. Pretending to be something that he wasn't. To receive something that was not his to receive. And now Jacob has to go before Isaac. And Isaac has to send Jacob away. Imagine how both of them are feeling in this moment. No costume this time. No goat hair. Isaac knows what's happened. And here Rebecca comes asking Isaac to send Jacob away to her, his uncle's house. And Jacob comes before his father. And I think that Isaac shows Jacob an incredible amount of grace by what happens next. Jacob kneels before his father and God says, may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. What? Those are not the first words that this dad would tell his son after such an incredible deception. But Isaac realizes something. He can't take back what he's already given. That's not how blessings work. That's not how culture works. Isaac also knows that Jacob now is the child of promise, the, the covenant that it got entered into with Abraham and was passed on to Isaac. Isaac has now passed it on to Jacob unknowingly, but he's still done it. So he still wants the promise to be fulfilled. So he gives to him what he has to give him. May God the Almighty bless you. May he make you fruitful. May he increase your numbers. May you become what God has intended for you to become. Even though you did it the wrong way, we still want you to be the child of promise. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so you can take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to your grandfather. Wow. That's incredible as a dad to be able to do that. Now, change positions in the encounter. Now you have Jacob kneeling before his father as this time himself. <laughs> How humbling, perhaps even humiliating to kneel before his father knowing that his deception is fully out in the open. Here's Jacob, heel grabber, deceiver, liar, con man, thief. Imagine knowing you're guilty and having to kneel before the one that you have offended. And Isaac offers grace. Jacob looking up into the face of his dad. Who's long, he's longed to hear the words he's just heard. Now he hears them. He's wanted to hear these words, but they ring hollow because Jacob still does not yet know who Isaac's talking about. He's not yet met God. Jacob, torn and conflicted, leaves. He, he and his mother, they don't even take time to load the camel. Uh, there's no Apple maps. Uh, Jacob just runs. He knows time is short. He knows Esau is kind of on the prowl. And Jacob runs until he comes to a rest area, a place that he thinks where it's safe to stop. And it's literally in the middle of nowhere. It's a place with no name. It's off the beaten path, just in case Esau would want to come and try to find him so he could not be followed. Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 and 11, they read, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. I think those words are true for him in many different ways. The sun in his life had set. 
what he once knew, what was real yesterday, is now no longer. Everything has changed. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. This is just an indication of his desperation. He has nothing. He has no one. He's by himself. He's hiding. And all he has as a pillow is a rock. Years ago, I was a camp counselor at kids camp. And one of the big things about kids camp that kids enjoyed was a pillow fight. And for a while, we'd have to kind of, we got, eventually got to a place where we policed a pillow fight, and we'd have to just have a big pillow fight out in the big field where everybody was kind of safe. And I have to admit that that happened because of something that I had done. I, when I would take a pillow, I had a nice feather-down pillow. If you're going to have a pillow fight, use a feather-down pillow. Those things compress, and they get a little bit stiff. You've got a nice little weapon in your hand. Now, don't use one of those little fluffy pillows. Don't use one of those little my pillows. Those don't do anything. And if you're going to do it in a pillow fight, the secret is the backhand. Everybody's watching for the forehand. No one's watching for the backhand. And I sent a few kids flying. I got in trouble as a counselor. So don't do that very often. But here's Jacob in the middle of nowhere. And all he has is a rock for a pillow. He's desperate. That, that verse tells us that he's literally at the bottom of the barrel. Life could get no worse. <laughs> Until it can. He's alone. He has his birthright. That's legally binding, yes. He's received the blessing. Yet what good is it, has it done for him? He's, he's heading literally nowhere. And the sun had set. And yet somehow, he's probably so mentally and emotionally exhausted, Jacob falls asleep. And as many of us do when we sleep, Jacob has a dream. It's a vivid dream. It's a dream we have all of the details to, and it's one that teaches us some incredible lessons. In his dream, he sees three things. Verses 12 and 13 of Genesis chapter 28 says, He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. He's a stairway. Not, not a ladder like you see behind me, rather a stairway. And more scripturally accurate, a ziggurat. We'll talk about a ziggurat here in just a few moments. But, but a ziggurat was like a pyramid with a staircase that ascended built around it. He saw angels. Now, every time we see angels appear in scripture, there are some words that also come with that appearance. The words, when an angel appears, you also always read, fear not, don't be afraid. See, angels are heralds. They're messengers from God. So when an angel would show up, you're about to hear something you may not want to hear. Angels, we have this image that they're dressed in white and they've got nice halos and they're playing harps and they're these beautiful creatures. And maybe they are. But when they showed up in biblical times, it was a terrifying sight. Now, it's not to say that they were scary looking, but rather they were, their, their appearance was a, this foretelling of that God has something to tell you. If God has something to tell you, it means something's not right, and you better pay attention. So when an angel shows up, there was fear. Jacob sees a stairway from earth to heaven. He sees angels ascending and descending on the stairway. And at the top, he sees the Lord God. Now, I don't know what that visually looked like. We're not told. But we know that God is there. And we see in verse 13 that, that God is at the top of the stairway, and he says to Jacob in his dream, I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. Jacob sees this connection between heaven and earth. God has a message for him. And God himself is coming to Jacob. God confirms the covenant that God made with Abraham and with Isaac. Then we see God do something beautiful. Something, I think, very telling about who he is, about who we need him to be. The second part of verse 13 God first says, there is the Lord your God, and the Lord your God, the father of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And then God says this, I will give you, Jacob, and your descendants the land upon which you are sitting. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Here's Jacob in the middle of nowhere. God shows up. 
introduces himself to Jacob, says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. I'm not yet your God, but here's what I'm offering you. I'm extending to you the promise. I'm extending to you the covenant that I made with Abraham and with Isaac. Turn back to Genesis chapter 27. Uh, last week we talked about this. When, when Jacob receives the meal that his mother Rebekah has made for him to present to, to Isaac to, to trick him, Isaac says to Jacob, boy, that was fast. How did you find the game so quickly? To which Jacob replies, the Lord, your God, gave me success. Jacob's not even pretending at this point to know who God is. He knows all about God, but he doesn't yet know God himself. But here's these three things. I'll be with you, I'll watch over you, and I will bring you back to this land. I will bring you home. And here's Jacob with nothing, with no one, about to leave his home. And this is exactly what he needs to hear in this moment. God confirms his covenant that Jacob is the child of promise. So many of us, maybe even you today, feel like God is so far away. Through the life of Jacob, God shows us that he's always present. But more importantly, he always pursues us when we wander. Always pursues us. Verses 16 and 17, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid, and he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Well, one of those words is going to be very important in our conversation in just a few moments. But before we get to how awesome is this place, he's not saying, hey, this place is cool. This place is really fun. In fact, the King James Version translates it differently. He says, how dreadful is this place? How overly awesome and terrifying is this place? How overwhelming is this place? There's nothing to indicate that Jacob in his life at, at this point has shown any interest in God. Yet God shows up. And when he does, in the presence of the angels and God speaking to him, Jacob realizes who he is. That's what God does. When we are face to face with God, not only do we see him, but we see ourselves for who we really are. And Jacob is terrified because he knows that he literally is a heel grabber. That he has lived down to his name his entire life. He's been confronted with this reality and he recognizes it and he is overwhelmed afraid. And I imagine his own knees are now shaking this moment. Jacob had not yet asked for God's help. He'd not yet repented or even acknowledged his deceit and his lies, but yet still God comes to Jacob. He comes to us even when we're wandering or lost. That's what God does. That's what love does. Jacob recognizes the significance of this moment and this place. And he says, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And we recognize here and now that God is the one who's initiating this relationship. God is the one who comes to us. If you are lost or not yet saved or you've thought about salvation or maybe you're just kind of new to this thing called faith and you're trying to figure it all out, you are not the one who finds God. None of us have found God on our own. God has always been the one who has pursued us. Always. Think differently is arrogant, prideful. It's just not true. The Holy Spirit draws us to God. The Holy Spirit reveals to us our need for God. And God chases after us, gives us the option of choosing to follow after Him. Aren't you glad for that? See, but this is a new and important understanding for Jacob. He sees what he calls the gate of heaven. And the gate of heaven, this is, this is not an unfamiliar term. This is a term that would have connected this story to Genesis chapter 11. It's where the digging becomes important for us. In Genesis chapter 11, we read the account of the Tower of Babel. And, and after the days of Noah and, and man began to start to rebuild uh, the population in their country, they start to build this tower. They said, we're going to build a tower to the heavens. We're going to ascend. We're going to climb this tower that we can climb in order to get to heaven. Heaven was their goal, not God. And they started to build this tower. Now, I think there were some that were probably wise and realistic to realize, you know, wherever early we're going to get to the heavens. So they get to a certain point in their building, and we know what happens to the Tower of Babel. But what, what we get to is they have this ziggurat that they've built. Same thing that Jacob sees in his dream. This ascending stairway to heaven. This was a symbolic uh, building, a symbolic construction. The people knew they weren't actually going to get to heaven, but yet this became a place where they could ascend to the gods. 
the top of the ziggurat became known as the gate of heaven. This is what Jacob sees. We could uh, climb as high as we want to climb, but we're still never going to quite get there. Ziggurats were built throughout history as uh, wherever important people lived or where people would move to so that they could be close to the gate of heaven. They could get close to the, to the gods. Uh, and they would often try to open up the gates of heaven by uh, committing and off, giving offerings. And this often looked like or presented itself as a child sacrifice. Again, one of those primitive archaic thoughts that we just like, well, why would anybody ever think that? What's well, even in Scripture? God asked Abraham to do what with his son Isaac? To take him up to the mountain and to offer him as a sacrifice. What did Abraham do? He immediately he obeyed God. Now, God intervened, and he stopped, and he said, no, Abraham, not really. I just want to make sure you're willing to be obedient to give me everything that was important to you. But this was the practice of Jacob's day. So when Jacob makes the statement, this place is the house of God, this is the gate of heaven, what he's talking about, this is a dreadful place. This is a place where we ascend, and we, we ascend, I see God at the top. I don't know if I really want to be here. A lot of realizations now happening. Jacob's life's getting turned upside down. And this is what Jacob sees. In Genesis chapter 11, the word Babel or Babylon means confusion. We know that God did confuse their language. But the confusion also speaks to what mankind's thinking or thoughts were when it comes to approaching him and knowing him. There was much confusion when it comes to understanding the gate of God. In this place alone, desperate, Jacob, in his confusion, has his first encounter with God. See, we each have to experience God individually. In Jacob's life, we see the difference between knowing about God and truly knowing who God is. I, I liken it this way. Many of us like to dance around God. But we, there's a come point in our life where we have to choose to dance with him. You can know all about him. But until you know him, he's going to keep chasing after you. We can't receive salvation from our parents or from our heritage. Salvation must be personal. We have to have a Jacob-like encounter with God ourselves. In Jacob's life, we see how this happens. See, Jacob doesn't climb the ladder to get to God, but rather God descends to Jacob. In the dream, we see the angels ascending and descending. We see God at the top. We see God come down doesn't ask Jacob to climb up. Jacob's not seeking God. Jacob's sleeping. <laughs> and God in Jacob's sleep is seeking Jacob. In our tradition, we call this prevenient grace, how grace seeks us out, how grace goes before us, how grace meets our needs, even before we might know who God is or that God's at work in our lives. In Jacob's dream, God introduces himself to the child of promise. Hello, my name is God. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I want to make a deal with you. I want to enter into a covenant with you. You are the child of promise. Here's what will happen. And the significance of this moment is this is the difference between religion and relationship. Religion, in religion, man continuously tries to climb the stairway to get to God. The interaction that we see in a relationship is that God comes down the stairs to us. In the midst of our mess, our sin, our dysfunction, our confusion, our uncertainty, our chaotic lives, God comes to us. What Jacob is seeing is a new and novel way of looking at religion. See, all other religions at this time had stairways to heaven. Stairways to heaven. This is religion. The goal is never Jesus or even God. The goal in religion is just heaven. It's a dramatic change when the goal becomes Jesus or God himself. But what Jacob is seeing the stairway not to heaven, but from heaven. Prepositions matter. See, it's not man-made, but God-made. And on this God-made stairway, we see descending. Descending. Now think about your relationships that you have in your life that are healthy, that are good. Those healthy and good relationships, all good, strong, healthy relationships, require descending by one and or both of those that are involved in the relationship. It can't just be one person ascending or one person just, just doing all of the going up. There has to be this back and forth. If there isn't back and forth, then it's not a healthy relationship. Same is true when it comes to our relationship with God. There has to be ascending and descending. God descends to us. 
We do enough descending on our own. God has to descend himself down to us. Invites us then to climb with him. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. But most religions today, they work in one direction. We have to climb the ladder to get to God. In religion, man ascends the stairway to get to God. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, be, be a good person. Uh, keep the Ten Commandments. Go to church on Sundays. Do good stuff. Uh, give an offering. Uh, if you are a Hebrew, you keep the Ten Commandments. If, if you're uh, um, and a Muslim, you would uh, follow the five pillars of faith. If you were a Buddhist, you would study the, the eight ways of, of enlightenment. You do these good things that you could keep climbing and ascending the ladder, hoping someday to climb high enough as to get to heaven. We all know that we never quite get high enough. As is true with most of us, well, Lord, I'm a little tired today, and I think I'm going to just skip out on worship. Well, you know, discipleship, I know it's important, but, you know, there's just nothing that really interests me. I don't think I'm going to go to Sunday school or give. Well, Lord, I got some other things going on that I got to give to and got to support. Before long, we find ourselves going backwards. We never quite reach the top, and if we don't stay up there very long, we end up coming down. It's all about works, all about what we do. We're always going to fall short. The scripture tells us that being good is not enough. There's only one who's good. And we learn in scripture that God knows his creation pretty well. And he knows what is considered good today will be different tomorrow. We live in a relativistic culture. What's good depends on who you are, who you're talking to. Luke chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus himself says, No one is good except God alone. Our definition of good changes. We move the goalposts to make ourselves feel better. We adjust to circumstance. We change what we consider good based on what's going on in our lives. But God's definition of good never changes. Jesus is the measuring stick. So if we're defining what good is, then the ladder's always moving. We're never going to get to the top because we're changing the destination. But wait for God to descend. He defines what's right. He comes to us when we're ready. He starts the relationship. We tend to determine good by using ourselves as a measure, our feeling as preferences. And this is why step religion, works faith, if you will, will never get us to the top of the ladder to God. We'll never measure up to God's standards. And this is why God must come down to us. In each of these religions, there's value in the steps. Don't get me wrong. There's value in trying to be a good person. Don't mistake what I'm saying. But the motivation is a limiting factor. Motivation in religion, in place of relationships, is I'm going to do all the work and I'm going to earn this. But God meets Jacob at the place in his life where he absolutely had earned nothing. He does the same thing for you and me. That's the beauty of grace. God chases after us. But this is not all that Jacob sees in his dream. God is descending the stairway to Jacob. God's presence envelops Jacob where he's at in the middle of nowhere with no one, nothing. Just the way God wants it. God pursues Jacob when Jacob has nothing else. And God offers him relationship. Church, in relationship, God descends the stairway to you and me. Theologically, this is significant. See, what we see in Jacob's dream is the reality of what we call salvation by grace. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We can't explain it. Yet there God is. Doesn't make sense to Jacob. And to be honest, it probably doesn't make sense to us either that God would offer us forgiveness and relationship and hope and grace after what I've done. Doesn't make any sense. But he does it. That's the depth of his love. He's shown himself to not be worthy of such grace, to not be worthy of being called a child of promise. His life is a train wreck. And in this moment of hopelessness, God would choose this precise time to come to Jacob. See, this is the exact time when Jacob was most ready to meet God. How does this happen? How does God know so much? Aren't you glad that he does? And it's the Jacob moments in our lives that make us most open to God. You might look at life, well, nothing's going right, and everything is terrible, and my life is hopeless. And I would tell you in that moment, grab hold of hope, because that means God's coming after you. He 
is drawing close to you. God is about to descend upon you. And we might be asked, left to ask this question, well, how does God descend upon us? And I know I'm after 10, but stay with me. You're going to like this. How does God descend upon us? John chapter 1, <laughs> the New Testament. The Old Testament is separated into, from the New Testament by the birth of Jesus. Jesus Christ is born, and we see in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of his life and his ministry and why he came. And in John chapter 1, we see it come to fruition. We see the connection between Jacob's dream and why Jesus came. In John chapter 1, uh, we see God appearing to his disciples. He's doing some teaching. He's kind of showing up, and, and he's uh, sh- uh, making some impact on, on the lives of those that are listening. And he's beginning to call his disciples, trying to create his team and to build others up and, and, and to make sure that they want to know that they're invited to be part of what's happening. And we see Jake, no, I'm sorry, we see Jesus talking, and, and, and Philip, one of his disciples, kind of catches when he likes what he's hearing and he's called to follow after Jesus. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, we in John chapter 1, were from Bethsaida. And now Philip, in verse 45, finds Nathanael, his friend. And he says to Nathanael, we have found the one Moses wrote about, about whom the prophets spoke. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, here's Nathanael. He's kind of well-educated. He knows a little bit of scripture, which is dangerous. He knows about the old way. And here's what Nathanael says. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. So Nathaniel kind of humors his friend. He gets up and he's walking in Jesus. In verse 47, we, we, we see this incredible story of when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, here is truly an honest man, a man in which there is no guile. Now the word guile, uh, to be guile, to have guile means to be sly, to be cunning. To be guileless means to be innocent of deception. Jesus looks at Nathaniel and says, here comes to a man in whom there is no guile, in whom there is no Jacob. They would have understood this. Nathaniel would have known what Jesus was saying. And so Nathaniel, he has his attention. He said, verse 40, he says, how do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus says, well, I saw you while you were there still sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, when you stand in the presence of Jesus, it doesn't take you long to realize what's happening. Nathaniel quickly recognizes what's going on while all that Philip has said is true. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus says in verse 50, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Let's not miss verse 51. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. And we see Jesus paint this incredible picture connecting Jacob's dream with the reality of who he is and why he has come. Nathaniel, I'm the stairway that Jacob saw. Nathaniel, I've come to, to bring promise not just to Jacob, but to everybody. Nathaniel, I've shown up as an answer to the dream that Jacob had to let you know that I am the gate of heaven. I'm the link between heaven and earth. Nathaniel, I'm the only way to God. Jesus is the true gate of heaven. We see this in John chapter 1. This would have been mind-blowing to Nathaniel. World-altering, life-altering. Everything he understood at this moment would have been changed completely. It was so completely different. Such a unique path to heaven than any other. A stairway not leading to the Son of Man. Jesus says they will be ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Prepositions matter. Jesus is the stairway. He's the key to relationship with God. This is Christianity as Jesus intended. Nathaniel, I'm the bridge between God and man. Salvation comes through me. It's nothing to do with what we do. It's about what I'm doing, what, what, why I'm doing it. See, our faith is about what Jesus has done for us. And, and church, we, we could spend, spend our whole life climbing and doing and climbing and achieving and climbing and striving and climbing and doing. But here's what happens. We get so high, and here's what, we read this label. It says, warning, don't go any higher. You could fall and hurt yourself. And church, it happens every Sunday in our churches. Good people, meaning well, climb and climb and climb. And they get to the certain point. Oh, sticker says I shouldn't go any higher. And they stay right where they're at in their faith. They don't take the next step because that's all their, their faith is. It's about religion. It's about trying to ascend to God instead of recognizing that God descends to us through Jesus Christ. If you find yourself on a ladder and you won't go any higher, ask yourself, God, has this become a religion for me? 
Or is it still about relationship? Because if it's all about climbing, we'll always fall short. Faith's not about the what. Faith is about the who. Not what are you climbing on, but who are you climbing on? And this account introduces us to the concept and the reality and the hope of this word we call grace. God met Jacob in the middle of nowhere, but not with reproach, but rather with promises. He met Jacob in the middle of nowhere, but not with condemnation, but with restoration. God met Jacob in the middle of nowhere, offering him a new beginning. And in his dream, in this encounter, we see the beginning of the shaping, if you will, the heart of the gospel. God comes to us. Jesus becomes a stairway. I love this part. Jacob has to respond to what he's seen. And each of us have to give a response to what we've heard. Every message you hear, every time you're in God's house, every, act, every time you're worshiping him, there's a point where we have to respond. We have to decide, what are we going to do with what we've just heard, what's been told to us? And Jacob responds in verse 20, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so I return safely to my father's house, then, don't miss this, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone I set up was just my, on my pillow, become a pillar, will be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. <laughs> we see this beautiful beginning of tithing, giving back to God in this moment. But Jacob says to God, if, if, if you really are coming down to me, if you're really passing on the promise, if you really entered into covenant with me, and you're going to do these things, then I want to be part of the covenant too. And you will be my God. The story of Jacob's life leads us to this conversation, this place where we have to give the same account. You see your mom and dad's God? Is he your neighbor's God? Is he your pastor's God? Is he your husband's God, your wife's God? Or is he your God? Is he your God? And curiously, if you start to look at Scripture, what we begin to see God known as, uh, Jacob is going to go through life. We'll get to some other parts of his story in just a few, few weeks. He, he, he's going to get married a couple times, have some kids. Those kids are going to grow up. They're going to go to Egypt. They're, they're going to be enslaved. They're going to build this great nation. They're going to come back to their promised land, fulfilling the promise that God had made to Jacob. Jacob's going to have his name changed in just a few weeks from Jacob to Israel. And from this point forward, even yet today, he's known as the God of Israel. Jacob believes. He's not just Abraham's God or Isaac's God. He's now his God. And when you enter a relationship with him, you take on his name, you become a child of God, and he takes on your name, he becomes the God of, put your name there. Because he is descends, he comes to us. I invite you to stand with me. I know you, you've given me a few extra minutes. I thank you for that. I hope it was worth it. This is some beautiful, powerful stuff. But what I hope for each and one of us is that we hear what Nathaniel heard that day. He sees you right where you're sitting, whatever fig tree you're resting under, God sees you right where you're at. And he invites you to follow him. Maybe he needs to turn upside down your understanding of faith. I want you to throw away these practices of religion. Again, not that those things aren't important, that the steps, I think, paint a picture of what's important to us, but if we only go so high, we're always going to fall a little short who God is and what he wants for us. I hadn't really thought this part through yet, but I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I don't do this a lot, but this just, just you, me, and God. We, we can be adults, right? We can handle this part, right? No looking around, seriously. Let's be respectful of others this morning. Eyes closed, heads bowed. How many of you say, Pastor, I've been climbing a ladder for too long, and I need some help. I need God to descend to me. Would you say, would you raise your hand? Say, Pastor, that's me. I've been climbing, I've been climbing, I've been climbing, and I need God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Please you. 
How many of you have reached a point in part of your ladder where you're not willing to climb any higher? That's a tough one to admit. You just need God's help in helping you realize or to create space so that he can help you climb or can meet you where he wants to meet you on that ladder. You say, Pastor, I, I, I want to climb higher today. Anybody? Thank you. Yes. Okay. For how many of us say, I'm tired of the religion part, Pastor. I want relationship. And I need God to descend upon me today. You're feeling hopeless. You're feeling tired. And you need God to descend. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Father, more than the hands, you see our hearts. You know us. Even better than we know ourselves, you know what we need. Lord, I know in this place today, there's a few that find themselves in the middle of nowhere, just like Jacob. Life is rough, it's taken things from him, and all they have left is a pillow of stone. I just pray, Lord, as you did for Jacob, you would show up. You would descend. You would invite them into relationship. And Lord, we'd be willing to let go of whatever's in the way, to surrender what it is that we think we have to have, to even throw out the rules and the regulations that we use as a measuring stick of what our faith looks like, what it means to be good. And Father, we would begin a new climb, not, not to you, but with you. Whereas you have already come down and you, you've wrapped your arms around us, you've embraced us right where we're at, and now, Lord, you're going to lift us up to help us become something we could never be on our own. May we experience grace today. May we recognize that you sent your son Jesus to be the gate of heaven, to be that staircase, to be that ladder that helps us come to you. Lord, it all makes sense when we see it. Now God help us to put it into practice. Maybe some hard decisions need to be made. Maybe some things need to be given up. Maybe some other things need to be pursued. Whatever it might be, Lord, as you reveal yourself to us, may we not be afraid but may we lean into you and accept your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go dream big dreams. Have a great day.